Um, we're going to open with a prayer. Ken's going to get us going with that, and then we'll move into our lesson. So, Father God, we just honor you for your abundant blessings and this rain we're having. We honor you because you sent your son to die for us. We honor you because you love us. Sometimes we need forgiveness for not returning that love like we should. Thank you for Alan and this, this series of lessons. Help us to more deeply understand the uh, points of view of Bible writers and yes, that you would help us to uh, understand and retain this information and use it in our lives for your service. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Appreciate you being here while we're. Uh, Title of the class, Reflections on the Road to Emmaus, kind of subtitled, Hearing the Old Testament Through the Gospels, and how the Gospel writers weaved in um, echoes or stories from the Old Testament that help us, or at least were intended, to help his listeners, their listeners, see the relationship and see a deeper meaning of who Jesus is as they were painting that portrait of the life of Jesus. Uh, we've been the last two weeks in Mark, uh, so now we're going to start in Matthew. And whereas Mark was subtle, Mark really just kind of gave us little hints and really never said, oh, I'm quoting from Isaiah. Occasionally he did that. But we noticed in Mark it was just these little phrases that we needed to pick up on to see how he was referencing back. Um, Matthew's got billboards. Matthew's much more upfront about it. And even though Mark was historically thought to be the first gospel written, Matthew's the first gospel in our New Testament. And there's speculation on that because, well, Matthew was a little more easy to read because he did give us these pointers. We see a lot of times in Matthew that there's some version of this took place to fulfill what has been spoken through the prophet saying, and we have this, in essence, a fulfillment citation is how we, we kind of refer to that. So 10 times we see this in Matthew, and if you'll notice, of those 10, five take place in the first four chapters. Now, and we know Matthew didn't have chapters uh, as Matthew wrote his gospel. It was just continuously written out. But that gives us a gauge, at least for us in our Bibles, to kind of see where, where in the story is Matthew pulling in these Old Testament passages. And he front loads it in his gospel. So Matthew's setting us up to see how Jesus is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. And uh, it grounds the identity of, G identity of Jesus firmly in the Old Testament text, into their authoritative texts. We're seeing that Jesus is a fulfillment of those texts. Matthew 1.1 starts out, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right off the bat, we're seeing that Matthew has told us that Jesus is a continuation of Israel's story. When he says son of David, he is tying Jesus into 
the royal line that Jesus is a king, an earthly king. And, and that's, that's the, the reference there that we're seeing. Son of Abraham, he's tying Jesus into that covenantal blessing that was given to Abraham. What did God promise Abraham? All nations on earth will be blessed through you. So Matthew has started us off by, by setting those two parameters for who Jesus is in his account. Now what's interesting is he also ties us back to the beginning. We don't get it in our translation. Okay? Our, the, the translators uh, don't help us much in seeing this linkage. Now for John, it's easy, right? John starts off with what? In the beginning was the Word. And we go, oh, I got that. I can go back to Genesis 1 and I read right there. In the beginning was, and that link's easy to see. This one's harder for us to see simply because of how words have been translated. Um, and, and it's a tough job on the translations. But the record, the Greek for that is book. Uh, Biblos, we, we get Bible from that. Genealogy is really... A, the Greek word means Genesis, which we get our word, well, Genesis from that. Again, we, um, so, so what do we see there? If we go back to Genesis 2-4, we see this is the account, this is the Genesis of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And again, that is from the Septuagint. The reason that's important is now we're comparing apples to apples. Because the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Matthew being written in Greek. So we're able to compare how those words are being used. And we see that same word. Again, Genesis 5.1. We have a very similar phrase. This is the book of the generations. Or this is the book of the Genesis. It's exactly how Matthew starts his gospel out. So we could infer that Jesus is kind of like a second Adam uh, in, in the creation story. And that is confirmed because when we get to Paul, Paul makes that point quite frequently in Romans that Jesus is, is a second Adam. Well, Matthew makes the same point. We just, it's just harder for us to see. Um, and, and again, no criticism to the, the translators because for us to read the book of the Genesis of Jesus, we, uh, what is he meaning by that? So for us, it makes sense to hear the book of the genealogy, what follows in Matthew, a genealogy. So it, it makes sense that we see that, but we miss that linkage back that Matthew has for us. Matthew 1.17, at the end of the genealogy, we read, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14, David to the deportation of Babylon, 14, and deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the plot of Israel's story. This is Israel summarized by Matthew. And he, peer, he puts it into three periods. And we have the founding covenant, up through the monarchy of David, kind of this ascending time frame to where we're seeing the nation uh, grow and come together and, and we eventually see the temple built. And then we have a period of time in which basically it's a decline now and Israel goes into exile. Babylon being the southern kingdom, northern kingdom went with Assyria prior to that. 
So we're seeing Judah going into exile. And that's, that's a theme that resonates through the passage here is, is being in exile and how are we coming out of exile? How will we be redeemed? And then the third period is kind of this obscurity where we're waiting for the Messiah. So it's kind of like, is this going to be our period in which we are returning from exile? Matthew 1.21, she will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Emmanuel is the name there. When we look at the list of the genealogy, what we see is a corporate decline into exile. We're seeing the kings listed, and it's not just the sins of the king. It is the sins of the nation that sends them into exile. So Jesus is not only or just coming for individual sins of breaking the legal code, but really a national sins of injustice and idolatry that led to the exile of Judah. The genealogy also includes four women. We know that's kind of unique. It's not often a genealogy would include women. What do we notice about those women? All four were non-Israelites. We we kind of assume Bathsheba was because she was married to Uzzah the Hittite. Um, And uh, so, so why did he include those? Part of it is that probably indicates the restoration of how the Gentiles are going to be brought into the kingdom. Again, the, the blessing to Abraham was what? All nations, not just Israel, will be blessed. So by Matthew incorporating in Gentile women, he's hinting that um, the, the Gentiles will be brought into this also. And how does Matthew end? He ends with the same message, right? go into all nations, uh, including the Gentiles. So these, these kind of bookend Matthew's story that this is not just for Israel, but it's for us also. And uh, another thing we see with these women are they really are um, strong women. They really are perceived as being heroines. Now, we may think Bathsheba's not. Well, Bathsheba's never condemned. David is the one condemned. Um, so Bathsheba is in a tough spot uh, because the king says, come, what's she going to do? Okay, so it's David who is condemned for the sin and who is the father, who is the mother of Solomon? Uh, Bathsheba, and she is in this royal lineage. Matthew 2.13 Uh, Now when they had gone, behold, angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, get up, take the child, uh, flee to Egypt. Uh, Joseph got up, took the child, he remained there until the death of Herod. And here's where we start seeing these fulfillment citations that Matthew presents to us. These are the billboards that Mark didn't give us. So Matthew says this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, again Hosea, out of Egypt I have called my son. And Matthew does give this authority saying that this isn't just the prophet doing the speaking. This is God speaking through the prophet. Again, Hosea 11.1 1, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I have called my son. 
Who is Hosea talking about? And what event is Hosea talking about? And we brought this up last week, so there's a real good guess. You can kind of guess this one almost every question. What event in the Old Testament is the seminal event? The Exodus. Very good. So Hosea is referring to Israel and referring to the Exodus event where God redeems. Matthew is taking that and now applying it to Jesus. Exodus 4.21, Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I put in your power. I'm going to harden his heart. You're just going to say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. We're going to, we need to keep that. That's kind of, let's tuck that away in our memory bank here for a minute for a few slides here. So we've got Israel being called God's son. And Hosea is reflecting back on that time. And we know that when Matthew is telling us to go back to Hosea, he's wanting us to also read more uh, than just that passage. The Hosea passage, though, is not a predictive passage. It is looking backwards, and Matthew is using it in a figural way to apply to Jesus, to deepen our understanding of who Jesus is. It's to tie the story of Jesus with the story of the Exodus and and kind of run those together. Hosea was not predicting that Jesus would go to Egypt. He is simply, Matthew is simply using that to help us understand the events. So sometimes Matthew's using fulfilled mean to complete, not necessarily to finish a direct prophecy. We're going to hit this a little, a little harder here in a few minutes. So again, we've got this passage here and... Uh, Let's see, am I going the right way? Yes. So if we continue reading in Hosea, God says what? I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. Ephraim was one of uh, Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. For I am God, not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So we have this phrase here again. When Matthew takes us back to Hosea, let's recognize we're going to read the whole context there. And within this context, God says that I am the Holy One in your midst. What is Jesus? Jesus is God with us. He is in our midst. So again, we have this relationship here. And Jesus is not coming in wrath. So that's a part of how we're seeing this ministry of Jesus. Uh, verse 16, again, of Matthew 1. Herod saw he'd been tricked, um, slays all the boys in um, Bethlehem in the vicinity. And then Matthew says, Then that what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. That's from Jeremiah 31. And at the beginning of Jeremiah 31, we have this, this opens that, that passage. 
At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. We come down to verse 15. The voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. So within this this, uh, lament that we have in the middle of Jeremiah 31, it is opened with a, a hopeful tone from what we see with God. And then if we go again to verse to Jeremiah chapter 40, because something is introduced here. Well, what happened in Ramah? What happened that um, Rachel is weeping for her children? Who is Rachel? We should maybe identify that first. Who is Rachel? Somebody can be loud and proud about knowing it. That's fine. Jacob's wife. Okay. Right. And... Um, so then we, from that we get the lineage of, uh, of Jesus or of the 12 tribes of Israel. So, so Jeremiah 40, we find this. The word came to Jeremiah uh, from the Lord, captain of the bodyguard, had released him from Ramah when he had been taken bound in chain among the exiles of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. So Ramah has to do with the exile. It seems like it was north of Jerusalem, appears to be a staging area, that the captives were taken from Jerusalem up to Ramah, and then from Ramah into Babylon, into exile. That is why Rachel, as the figurative mother of Israel, she is weeping. Why? Because her children are going into exile. So we have this this figure of of children going into exile and this this lament that's happening that is accompanying the time of Herod here. Uh, We're going to deal with it. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But again, again, we're still in Jeremiah 31. So Matthew's taken us there. He's kind of parked us in the middle with a quote. We see at the beginning a hopeful tone. And now what do we see as after we get through this lament passage? Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. So in the midst of this this taking, uh, going into exile, God offers the children of Israel hope that there is going to come a new covenant and and I'm going to gather you back. And by Matthew taking us back to this passage, he is inferring that Jesus is this new covenant, that Jesus is this time that is predicted by Jeremiah. Uh, Matthew 2.14. So in, let me, let's go back. So again, what is Jeremiah referencing? What event do we see Jeremiah referencing? The Exodus. Uh, Again, he took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Exodus. 
So when we when we look through uh, wrong button. When we come back to Matthew and we read the account of the birth of Jesus, and we're just kind of in, in Matthew 1 and 2 here, we've got this vision or this story of Exodus. We, we kind of have that in our mind now. Look at what we see. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night. He left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. And again, we've read this. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord. Back to Hosea. Exodus 23. Came about the course of many days. The king of Egypt died. When, when we see the Passover, when did the Passover happen? The first Passover. At night. Jesus when did the angel pass over? At night. We see here, Herod died. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared. Dreamed to Joseph. Go, get up, take the child and his mother. Go to the land of Egypt. Um, go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. What does God say to Moses? Moses said, I want you to go back to Egypt. Why? For the men who are seeking your life are dead. Taken individually, we probably don't see much, but when we start putting all of these together, we really start seeing this connection of Jesus' birth and the story how Matthew is describing it and these little hints that go back to the story of Exodus. And it's presenting to us a story that Jesus is, is kind of following this Exodus story of redemption. And is Jesus Moses, kind of like a Moses? Well, yeah, he, we're going to see that he's presented as that. Is Jesus like Israel being, being brought out? Well, yeah, we're going to kind of see some of that too. Um, Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, became enraged. He slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all in its vicinity who were two years old and over. What did we see in the Exodus story? Well, king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. Um, says when you're helping them, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to kill all the male children. So again, a, just another reference, slight echo of the Exodus story that we're seeing here in Matthew. Um, we compare Matthew and Mark. Again, most a lot of scholars feel like um, Matthew used Mark kind of as an outline. And here is one, one event where we're seeing two similar events. And, and as we look at those, we see how they line up. Again, it's color-coded so that we can see those, those phrases that, in essence, Matthew almost copies identically. But what does Matthew add that Mark doesn't in the, the bab baptism of Jesus? He's got the little phrase there that says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said. So, um, yeah, and that's also over in, in Mark 2. Let me come back here. Let's see. Both of them speak of John. Last week we talked about John. Is Matthew and Mark telling us how John was dressed as a fashion statement? No. Why is he telling us 
that John had camel hair and a leather belt? This is open book test. How was Elijah described? Elijah described as a hairy man with a leather belt. So the, the reference to how John is dressed is to tell us who John is. John is the coming Elijah that was prophesied um, and, and the one who's going to make ready the ways of the Lord. Verse 15. So again, we see Jesus coming. Again, it's color-coded. But here we have... Um, a little more into what Jesus or how Matthew records this. John wanted to prevent him. Jesus says what? Permit it at this time for it is in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And what we see in Matthew, Matthew likes that term fulfill. He uses that term a lot and, and we see that in this passage. It's kind of like, what does he mean to fulfill all righteousness? Really, I think he's saying to complete, to, to make, to kind of give us the full picture of who Jesus is. Now, if we relate this back to the Exodus story, do we have uh, the Jordan River involved in the Exodus story at all? Yes, we do. What did they do? What did the Israelites cross as they went into the promised land? They crossed the Jordan River. Where is Jesus baptized? In the Jordan River. So we have these these elements that are tying the story of Jesus to the story of the Exodus. Right after Jesus is baptized, we get into his temptation. So this is the the account of the uh, temptations. Mark's is very brief. Matthew's going to elaborate on it a lot more. Uh, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he fasted 40 days, 40 nights, he became hungry. And then we have these temptations that are given to Jesus. So again, our first detail that's given to us is after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. As Greek-thinking Americans, we read that and we go, oh, okay. He's out there 40 days and 40 nights. That was simply a chronological event that Matthew was telling us, and we are impressed with the length of Jesus' fasting. And we continue on from that. But if we start thinking again, we start thinking maybe Exodus story, and we think the number 40, anything come to mind with that? Well, 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years in the wilderness, we'll get to that one. We also have who? Moses. He's on the mountain. How long is he on the mountain? Forty days and nights. So part of it, we could say, well, what was Jesus doing for 40 days and 40 nights? Well, what was Moses doing for 40 days and 40 nights? What does it say? I prayed to the Lord. What was what, He's saying, you know, this is after the golden calf. And Moses saying, look, guys, I, I spent 40 days praying for you because of your boneheaded decision for God not to wipe you out because he sure wants to. I don't think they have the <laughs> Depends on the version you use. <laughs> Moses didn't put that in, but he sure thought it. <laughs> so we have this reference to Moses being on the mountain 40 days, 40 nights in supplication. We have Jesus fasting 40 days and 40 nights. We can assume 
that Jesus was more than likely making supplication for the nation of Israel for his upcoming uh, ministry. Exodus 34, this is the first time Moses goes up. And um, as he's getting the covenant, how long is he there? 40 days and 40 nights, during which time what? He neither ate nor drank. And he wrote on the tablets the ten words. We call them the ten commandments. The actual Jewish is the ten words. Um, and that's, that's how we get Decalogue. Uh, so when we refer to the Ten Commandments as the Decalogue, simply ten words. What is this? So, so why is Matthew telling us Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights? It's not to tell us the length of his fast. It's to tie him back to Moses and say Jesus is a type of Moses. Now again, we, we like to, to think of the uh, 40 days as being a literal 40 days. Was he there a literal 40 days and nights fasting? Could have been. But that's not the point. The point is, he is like Moses. Why is that important? What did God told Moses? Moses, he said, look, I'm going to raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you. So the children of Israel have been looking for somebody to replace Moses. Who is this prophet that's coming that's going to replace Moses? Who's going to be like Moses? That's the, that's the prophecy that's there. That's who they're looking for. Deuteronomy ends with this, and, and most think this was probably added around the time of exile, um, so the time of Babylon. Obviously, Moses doesn't write this. So Joshua was filled with the spirit of wisdom. Moses laid his hands on him. Sons of Israel listened to him. But verse 10 says what? Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. So the prophecy of a prophet coming like Moses at the time this is written was still yet unfilled. So we know what? We know Joshua wasn't that prophet. We know none of the others who came were that prophet. So they are still looking for it. That's why it's important that Matthew tie Jesus back and say, Jesus is a prophet in the vein of Moses, and he is the one we have been looking for. When we went to the, the road to Emmaus, what did, those, what did Cleopas say? He said, what about Jesus? We know he's a prophet. And what did we think? We thought he was what? He was the one who was going to redeem us. They were thinking maybe he is the one along the line of Moses, Moses being the redeemer. And Cleopas was right. He just didn't realize it at the time. So as we're getting into this now, we see uh, the devil or the tempter says, if you are the son of God, says this twice. Notice the third temptation, he doesn't say that. Kind of just an interesting point there that he doesn't say, well, well if you are the Son of God. He, he just goes right into the temptation. But the first two are, if, the, if you are the Son of God. So what do we, what's the tempter meaning by that? How do we interpret that normally almost every time? Well, we talked about this some last week. 
we talk, we interpret that typically that God Jesus is divine. We see Son of God. We've just gone through the baptism to where there's a voice from heaven who says, what? This is my beloved Son. So we tie that into Jesus' divinity, and we kind of go along that path. It's not wrong. That's correct. So could Satan be saying, if you are the divine Son of God, prove yourself? Yes. What did we learn also last week? How does Mark use Son of God? He uses it as a royal title of the earthly king. We saw David being called, the Israel's king being called God's son. God says to the king, you are my son, I am your father. So son of God is an earthly title representing the king of Israel. So we could read this, that the tempter is saying, hey, if you really are the true king of Israel, prove it. What did we learn tonight from Hosea and from Exodus? Who else is God's son? Well, Israel. We saw what? We saw Moses go to Pharaoh say, Hey, Israel is my firstborn son. I have called my son out of Egypt. So it could be that Jesus is standing here in the place of Israel Steve mentioned it. How long was Israel in the wilderness? Forty years. Forty is a number that, that can mean forty. Okay. Women, uh, the, the side of the, the temple was or tabernacle was forty cubits. It wasn't thirty-nine, it wasn't forty-one, it was forty. Women after childbirth spent forty days in a purification process, not thirty-nine, not forty-one but 40 days. But we also see 40 used as a, as in essence as a period of time. A period of time of testing, a period of time of trials, a period of time in which, um, and, and I, I really think that if we look at the, the laws again governing women after childbirth, that was their time of purification, that maybe 40 is that time of purification, that time of, 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 of testing there. And again, go back through the Old Testament. How many days did it rain upon the earth? Forty days, forty nights. How long? I mean, Moses sends out the the dove. Forty days. We we see this forty coming up a lot in this period of time, kind of referencing a time of of trials or testing. So Jesus is forty days being tested. Israel was forty years in the wilderness being tested. And as Israel is 40 years in the wilderness being tested, how'd they do? If we look at those tests, uh, they failed miserably, didn't they? So the tempter is saying, hey, if you're going to stand in for Israel, I know how those 40 years went. How are you going to do? So then we see these the, the three temptations here. So the tests... Again, 40 days could correspond to the 40 years. Uh, the children of Israel emerged as very stiff-necked people. Jesus emerges as one who is obedient. The first temptation, it is written, man um, shall not live by bread alone. This is the response to the temptation. But every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Um Deuteronomy chapter 8, go down to verse 2. 
You shall remember all the way which the Lord has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you. That's how we know those 40 years were for testing. To know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry. What does it say about Jesus? 40 days, 40 nights, he was what? He was hungry. Again, we're tying this right back. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers knew. And then we get to the quote that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So this is our context for Jesus' answer to the first temptation. Second one, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where we find this. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You should keep the commandments, uh, keep his testimonies. Our first question then kind of has to be, well, okay, what's Massa? And we all know that one, right? Well, probably not. Exodus 17, uh, chapter 2, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. Moses said, Why do you quarrel with me? What is it they're doing? Why do you test the Lord. So we see how that's tying in now. They grumbled against Moses. And down to verse 7, where did this happen? He named the place Massa and Meribah because they tested the Lord. Is the Lord among us or not? So Jesus again is referring back to this incident. So we have to be familiar with the Exodus story to understand how Jesus is responding we can even come over to Psalm 95. We see this. Now, Psalm 95, verse 6, we got that. We sing that, right? Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel. We don't get to 7 to 8 very often, do we? We, we? we like to sing 6 and 7, 8 not as much. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation. And they said, They are people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, Truly they shall not enter my rest. In the context of what we're seeing with Jesus referring back to that, what is Jesus eventually going to say? Come unto me, all who are weary and burdened, and what? The rest that they could not get is what Jesus offers. The third temptation. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's coming from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, it's come about when the Lord brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give you. Um, you're going to watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear him, fear only the Lord your God. You shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods. So here the Exodus writer, Moses, says, you shall fear the Lord your God and, and worship him. We see that if we, if we run these in parallel, Moses says, fear the Lord and worship. 
Jesus says what? Worship and serve. So we see worship and fear kind of laid on top of each other. Serve and worship being laid on top of each other in, in, a, in a parallel sense. But let's, let's remember what Jesus is saying there. Who can you worship? The Lord. And the Lord only. And that's going to come into play later in the gospel when Matthew tells us that certain individuals bow down and worship Jesus. Does he discourage that? Does he tell them no? So by not telling them no and accepting their worship, if we take this statement that Jesus has made, what has he said about himself? He is equal to the God of Israel. He says, hey, you can only worship the Lord God of Israel. And if I take worship and this statement is truth, then I can assume that Jesus is declaring that he is the God of Israel. And that's, that's one of the points that Matthew is, is, makes that some of the other writers don't. Is he often includes how people respond to Jesus in worship, and Jesus does not rebuke them for that. So Jesus has been moving back through Deuteronomy. He's gone from Deut again. We know Deuteronomy wasn't chapter and verse when when it was written or compiled. That's ours. But we can see that this progression is back through Deuteronomy. And if we go back just a little more from chapter from six ten, we get to six four. And again, Jesus, I think, is bringing us to Deuteronomy to give us the context. And what do we have in six four? We have uh, again what the Jews will call the Shema here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so Jesus, in essence, is taking us all the way back to this statement of faith by Israel of who God is. Uh, chapter 1, verse 22. Okay, we're now moving into kind of talking about this fulfillment citation that, that Matthew seems to give us a lot of. Matthew, question? Yeah, you probably don't have an answer for it. But That's a nice setup. I appreciate <laughs> it. Well, you know, I'm, you're connecting the Old Testament with the New Testament. And Jesus is in the Old as well as the New, obviously. But I have a hard time understanding why the Jews don't see this. And why they don't believe in Jesus, or they believe he was a man, but yeah. not the Son of God. Let's be careful that we, we use Jews as, a, as an overriding statement, because many Jews did believe. Okay. As we go through Matthew, we'll see the scribes, the Pharisees have, have some struggles. But in Matthew, once we get to the end of Matthew, it's really the scribes and the elders, the, the leaders of Jerusalem, that, um, that fail to recognize who Jesus is. And what, we're gonna, and what we see with that is, let's go back to Exodus. Can't we ask the same question in the Exodus story? Holy smokes, you saw 10 
plagues. You saw the Red Sea parted. You saw the fire and stuff on the mountain, and you're going to put up a golden calf and say, here's your God? So, yeah, so, so no, I, I, you know, yeah, it, it's the same, same story, just kind of repeated over. So if they couldn't see who God was through the events, through the Exodus, no, they're not going to see who Jesus is. But many did. Okay? Many did, did stay faithful to God. There was always a remnant in Israel, and there was a remnant uh, in the New Testament also that we see. Is that decent? Okay, good. All right, Matthew one twenty two, kind of the first one. Now this was spoken to fulfill the word of the Lord through the prophet Matthew two. Uh, again, we've seen this. We've been through this one. This was to fulfill what was been spoken. We see this coming up a lot in Matthew. Matthew two, uh, fulfill what was spoken. He shall be called a Nazarene. Matthew four, spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Matthew eight, spoken through the prophet Isaiah. So we have all of these. This was to fulfill. And when we look at these passages, we have to ask, are these predictive prophecies? Now, we know there are some predictive prophecies. Why? Because when Jesus was born, the Magi came. They said, hey, where's Jesus going to be born? What did they do? What did the scribes do? They went to uh, Micah. And they said, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. How do you know that? Micah says it. Micah prophesies it. That's a predictive prophecy. One that they knew this was going to, you know, kind of show who the Messiah is. But as we talked about in Hosea, Hosea is not prophesying about the Messiah. He's talking in retrospect about the land of Israel. And Matthew is just using this text to link the story of Israel and add meaning to its original event. So it's, it's in essence taking that, repurposing the passage, and giving us a, a saying that Jesus really fulfills this or completes this. Most of the time, Matthew will be quoting from the Septuagint. We can kind of compare that and see. Sometimes it's the Masoretic or the Hebrew text, and sometimes it seems like he's just pulling in some other source. It could be from memory. It could be other documents that we don't have access to. Um, but it doesn't have to be predictive. It can mean that it's bringing to completion or to perfect a comparison, giving uh, that text, in essence, a new meaning. This guy's quote I thought was very good. Uh, The purpose of these quotations and their parallels are not to show Jesus as the realization of predictions made by those prophets, but to show that the story of Jesus is consonant and coherent with the story of the Old Testament as a whole. So it was important for the Jews that Jesus be a continuation of their story. The Gospels are not presenting Jesus as starting a new religion. And that's how we think of it because it's how we've always thought of it. We've always seen Judaism on one side, Christianity on the other, separate religions. Not here. We're still within Judaism. We're still within the Hebrew faith. We're still within the Hebrew scriptures. So Matthew has to say, has to show that Jesus is simply a continuation of this story. Jesus is who we have been looking for in our Hebrew passages. 
and I'm showing you how he fits into our story. And it's hard for us because it's not our story. And, and we, we are just not as familiar with the story. Now again, for a Jew, kind of probably Jesus's time and, and certainly more current times, they, they would read through the Torah either once every three years, once a year. Torah meaning the first five books. Now, could we pick up on a lot of this if we read through the first five books every year? I'm going, okay, so I would have gone through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy 50 times. Would I have a familiarity with the stories if that were true? Well, yeah. That's their culture. But we probably haven't been to Leviticus outside of this class in maybe, oh, a decade. <laughs> see, see our struggle in, in kind of sometimes seeing the links. But let's not make all of these statements that Matthew makes to where Jesus is fulfilling as being a predictive text. We, we, we just don't need to try to push that shoehorn in. We can make it be that he is referring back to a story to help us understand who Jesus is. Jesus said, what? Don't think I came to abolish the law. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law. The way of saying that is, I didn't come to improperly interpret Torah, but I came to live out Torah as it was meant to be laid out, lived out. I am, I, am in, I am interpreting and I am living out Torah to its completion. Again, we'll think, we kind of read that and we think um, where Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish it, but I came to fulfill it. I came to finish it. Well, that doesn't make sense, does it? I didn't come to abolish, but I came to abolish. No, it's I, I didn't come to set Torah aside. I came to interpret it the way it was meant to be lived out. So Torah and Matthew is Matthew's presentation of Jesus in his relationship to Torah is is very important. Again, Torah, we we kind of think law. And law for us has some baggage. Because we are a country built on laws. We have a very legal, we got a legal system that upholds our laws. We are very law-based. And in our New Testament, we typically see law represented. That's how the translators interpreted it. Really, the word is more Torah. Torah can mean the first five books, it can mean the entire Old Testament. So it's, it's the, the meaning is not just very specific. But Torah really is God's direction or God's advice. And, and it's incorrect for us to narrow that meaning down to just law. So when we think of Torah, we're thinking of all of God's advice through the Old Testament. So that's why he can say that I did not come to uh, end all of the laws of Israel or all of the laws of the Old Testament. That's not what this passage is saying. It is a passage of saying that Torah is going to exist until heaven and earth pass away. Is God's advice or God's direction applicable to us today? 
We would say yes. And that's what Torah is. Right after he says this, he he starts going through some of the commandments. We see these um, listed throughout uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy. Uh, Not committing murder, not commit adultery, but I say to you, he is not negating these commands, but is in essence saying, here is really what we were talking about. When he says don't murder, the Torah, the law there was not just to keep you from killing somebody. What was the intent of of that God's advice? Hey, I don't even want you being angry, that angry with somebody. And that's how Jesus is saying, I'm fulfilling Torah. I'm showing you the the greater meaning, the deeper meaning behind these commands. Question is asked, okay, which is the greatest command? And we, we know this. He says what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Genesis 6, 4. We were just there with the Shema, right? The hero Israel. What does it say? Verse 5, you shall love the Lord with all your, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Jews are going to recite this every morning. The second of it, love your neighbor as yourself, comes from Leviticus. Hey, we're back to Leviticus, so we've been there for now for the next 10 years. We're good. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor. You shall not take vengeance, uh, bear a grudge against the sons of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is where Jesus is taking us when he refers back to the two greatest commands. So what do we see? We see every command. Jesus says this. Every command that is given in the Old Testament hangs on these two. And this to me was was probably kind of what I was envisioning as the illustration. It's any command I find... It's hanging from this. I don't have any other command that falls outside of these two commandments. So how does that help me as I read through Paul or Peter or John? What do I know? I know that all the commands, all the stuff that's written in the New Testament also hangs from these two commands. If I've got a commandment, if I'm saying, hey, Paul said this, and I can't pull it back and hang it off of one of those two, I'm probably wrong in my interpretation of Paul. Because everything must hang from these two commands. Bill? So there is that one commandment that says, don't eat anything with this life blood in it. Uh, I'll let you go through all the passages that are in small prayer. <laughs> you know, I would say loving the Lord your God because that was a command that he he initiated um, from that standpoint. But don't do that. He just he's just trying to cause problems. I, I know that. And he gets one problem question after that. Alan, yes. Uh, Helio said that it was written that he said that uh, uh, the two commandments... Uh, the whole law exists for two commandments. Everything else is commentary. Yes. So if we look at Paul, Peter, and all of them as commentators to those two commandments, we can, it helps us understand those. Yeah, very good. Another 
lens through which Jesus or Matthew is going to present Torah or the laws or God's advice, the Old Testament, is with the concept of mercy. We see this encounter. Jesus said, how often should I uh, forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? Again, Peter's feeling quite generous. Jesus says, no. Seventy times seven, or seventy-seven times some translations. Where did Jesus get this number from? Just kind of pull it out. Well, if we go back to Genesis, Lamech said to his wives, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Again, very similar. So I would probably not want it to be either a son or a wife of Lamech, where he's, he's bragging about somebody, you know, bumped into me and I killed him. But Jesus is contrasting himself to this, this passage here in Genesis that says, no, we, we, for, we forgive. Mercy is what, how we treat others. Jesus was reclining at a table. We're at Matthew 9. Pharisees saw this. Again, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus heard this. It's not the healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Matthew 12. Jesus going through the grain fields on the Sabbath with his disciples. They're rubbing the grains, getting some wheat to eat. Little granola, apparently. Verse 7, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Where is Jesus pulling this from? Back to Hosea, chapter 6. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Uh, the complete Jewish Bible translates it more, more accurately here, I think. For what I desire is mercy, not sacrifice, knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Hosea 6.1. Again, we're getting the context, right? We know that when we see a passage that Jesus quotes, we're not going to that one. We're going above and below it to get the whole context of what the prophet was talking about. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. We see hope in that, don't we? How is Israel to respond to God's rebuke? Because in Hosea, we see God rebuking Israel. And he's responding with a plea to return to him. How are we to interpret Torah? What lens do we use? Or how do we interpret Paul's writings in the New Testament? What, is, what does Jesus tell us? We, we are to learn and go what this, learn what this, what does this mean? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What lens was the Pharisees using? They were, they were using the lens of a very strict obedience to the law. And a lot of it, their own interpretation of the law. The fences that they had built around the law. Sacrifice. What does Jesus say? Jesus commands mercy to others as the lens to use. And that's a strong message for us today.
that we are to view as we go through the New Testament. We view it all through the lens of mercy. This final statement from Richard Hayes. All the commandments are to be interpreted in such a way as to engender and promote the practice of mercy among God's people. Um, what, a, what a challenging thought there. And we see that in how Jesus is responding to others. That's how Jesus is interpreting Torah. When he says, I came to fulfill Torah, this is what he's saying. I'm living this life. This is my, this is my goal for you as God's people. So with that, we will delve into Matthew a little more next week and continue our study on. I'm getting you out one minute over, so I feel good about that. Everybody? Nope, it's out of time. I think we've seen that with the woman caught in adultery, the compassion and mercy and not the rule of the law. Yeah. You know, I mean, Jesus, I mean, just lays it out for these guys ready to stone her. Yeah. You know, so I mean, when you look at these things, it's like it's neat to see this. It's like when you pull it out of the Old Testament, New Testament, and then you see an application of it. It's like here it is, right in your face. You know, it's like this exactly. is what he's looking for. Because you look at some of the things where they talk about. Well, you know, if you have a person that does this, you need an eye for an eye. You know, and it's like no, it's, it, you know, just like what you're saying. Like, oh, yeah, that's not exactly what the intent is. So it's kind of cool. Very good. So again, my my. Um, my encouragement is, as, we, as you go back and read through Matthew, um, hopefully we've got some new lenses with which to, to interpret the, the passages that we've been reading and, and hopefully to see just how, how, how mercy was lived out in the life of Christ and how he wants us to live it out in our lives to others. So thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.